welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, thank you for joining us today again for another COVID edition of the Addiction Connection. Today is COVID summary number six. We had a Dr. Rashmi Rao, who is a physician in UCLA. So she practices in paradise, basically. We had a nice um, green screen picture of, you know, Santa Monica or wherever she practices and Santa Barbara. I don't remember, but something beautiful. Um, so she's the head maternal fetal medicine um, provider, COVID-19 clinical lead, OBGYN, UCLA, all of those fancy things. Lots of letters behind her name. Lots of letters. And the best part is is how we connected with her. I didn't connect with her at all. No, Facebook. Everybody should be on Facebook. I'm not. So she uh, kind of started out real general, and I, it was a great talk, Forty about 45 minutes of uh, just amazing information from uh, Dr. Rao. And basically she started out with the COVID uh, virology and she talked a lot about kind of those host receptors, the ACE2 receptors, which are what the uh, COVID-19 attaches to. Uh, none of this really new to our podcast, but she did talk a lot about the interesting thing that the sequences of a lot of these uh, different viruses uh, are very similar, the SARS and the MERS, uh, 50 to 80% similar when you when they sequence these. And again, she highlighted kind of that are not number, that reproduction number. You are not. I am not. Are not about two point two, which is actually a lot more um, virulent than the common cold or the common influenza, um, but less so than measles. What was measles? It was like ten or something. It was eight. I don't know. It was high. That's why we have a vaccine for that. Correct. And really, uh, she talked a lot about that in incubation again, right around five days, but that's an average. Uh, she actually had some data that showed that even up to 30-plus uh, days, there was still some transmission potential that the incubation could go that far out. Uh, the range, most commonly, though, 2 to 14 days for incubation. And then the viral shedding average, 20 days or so. You know, I think I mixed that up. You did, but that's okay. Again, incubation average, five days, range up to two weeks. Was, viral shedding for 20 days. I hit my head really hard in third grade <laughs> and it's still. Still uh, is a problem. I really like how she said that this virus does not discriminate on any age. You know, really the age is the entire age. Um, everybody birth to, to death at this point. Um, most patients between the ages of 10 and 89 with the median age of 59 who are um, impacted. Although very interestingly, hospitalized patients are a little bit younger than this mean the hospitalized patients are between 49 and 56. So both of us are out of that category, <laughs> and you're still somehow younger than the median age. I am. Yes, and, uh, barely. And, of course, of those uh, mature patients, uh, a third to half of them have underlying illness, of which I have none. You have uh, a bit of asthma. A bit, maybe. Um, and, and, of course, the men love to win, and 56% of the people affected are men. Although, ironically, in Minnesota, women are still winning. Um, I just saw that update at MDH. I don't remember what it was, but it was women were slightly ahead in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. As far as hospitalized or just getting it? Good question. 
don't remember. Yeah, and of course, ch- children are not often involved with this. I mean, they they tend to get sick, but I've not been a high percentage of uh, either the deaths or the severe illness. Um, when you're looking at the symptoms, you know, these percentages, I'm not even really going to focus on because it depends on which exact article, but the most, the top three common symptoms, fever, dry cough, fatigue, but it can be anything, sore throat, headache. I love the conjunctivitis thing. And just even um, most recent data that came out of um, just recently, we saw on the University of uh, Washington website yesterday um, or this morning, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting seem to be kind of taking a huge lead in our country versus in other areas around the world. I think it said up to a third. Isn't that yeah, what it said? Something around there. Whereas in China, diarrhea was only like 5%. Maybe it's our diet. You know, every morning when I come in and they check my temperature, I've last couple of days ago, I said, well, what if I'm that 13% that doesn't get a fever? And they just looked at me and I was like. Crickets. Yeah. What? Oh, we don't have a cricket button, do we? We do somewhere, but anyway. Okay. So, and, and of course, some of the less common symptoms are, are, and I think one of the most interesting ones is still this conjunctival thing. And I actually had two patients that came back from Florida and they had the fever, cough, chills, and they had horrible burning in their eyes and both the husband and wife had that so i think that's a rare one around one percent but still it was pretty interesting to hear that story of course that was before we could test people so here she is um dr rashim rashmi rao um is on today as you know really we asked her to come on today to talk about the whole maternal care pregnancy care so she really emphasized a couple main um, studies that have been done. Of course, this is a new enough disease. I don't remember exactly how many days we are at right now, around 150. Um, a couple studies out of China, one where there was 13 patients, um, average age 22 to 26, or excuse me, 22 to 36, um, a majority of whom were in the third trimester. Another study of nine patients, also that third trimester, Um Really, what they came out of these studies were saying that there was really nothing um, that would show vertical transmission. Um, and the bottom line is six out of 10 of these, or excuse me, a majority of them were having some preterm birth issues. Um, it seemed to be the most underlying thing. Um, and that fetuses that do worse or babies that do worse tend to have um, a lot of issues at birth. Correct. Yeah, and actually, there are very few deaths. Very which, few uh, deaths, which just is a good one thing. in the one study of ten. So, um, and of course, there are other viruses that uh, in the past have kind of hit the pregnancies as well. You know, SARS, COVID, and uh, there's been some studies with that. Uh, and and really, when you look at MERS and SARS, uh, there are a fair amount of complications with those as well, and probably worse than uh, what currently they're seeing with this particular issue. Uh, a lot of ARDS, DIC, uh, pneumonia, sepsis, and um, an intrauterine uh, fetal demise, as well as uh, preterm uh, labor issues, but it it sure appears that that the COVID nineteen doesn't really cause quite as many of these issues, right? And so the bottom line is, and she said it numerous times, there's just not a ton of data, but as of right now, the data that is there is reassuring. Um, they don't seem to show that there's pregnant women have an increased susceptibility, which is, of course, interesting because it is a, a time in one's life as a female that you do have um, a slightly decreased immune system. But they're still showing that pregnancy doesn't increase your risk, um, and nor does it increase the severity of the disease if you get it. And then again and again and again, no vertical transmission. Well, that's been proven. That's been proven. Uh, and most of the, the infants uh, that have been born with with mothers who have COVID have swabbed negative at 24 and 48 as life. 
48 hours of life, easy for me to say. Um, and COVID-19 has not currently been found in amniotic fluid, cord blood, or breast milk. And that, so that's really important to kind of keep that in mind. Breast milk is always going to be recommended in this patient population. And she did point out that even in a positive mom and the baby's negative, it's still important the breast milk is. And whether or not that meant the mom is still breastfeeding um, versus pumping and bottling, that's kind of a case-by-case situation. Um, but the breast milk is still going to offer a lot of benefits, especially with all those immunoglobulins and everything that go through the breast milk. Yeah, one of the things that she talked about was how we've had a lot of similar diseases where they've been able to kind of um, you know, gain some information about how these viral illnesses may affect babies. Uh, and, you know, looking at, again, influenza, SARS, excuse me, SARS, MERS, uh, and all these things. And looking at how the fevers in these pregnancy may affect uh, the risks or of certain birth defects and other things. Uh, you know, and the question is, can you stretch it from these viral illnesses to COVID-19? And, of course, there's not a lot of data. Um, the, one of the great questions that was asked was, you know, what do you do if a mom has, you know, had COVID early in a pregnancy? You know, a lot of this data is in end of pregnancy, like the preterm labor, the late pretermers, um, smaller babies. But what about the mom that gets COVID when she's early pregnancy, recovers, and then delivers a baby, you know, down the road? Um, should you do increased um, measurements? And she she did point out that that would not be a bad idea to do growth serial growth on baby to make sure baby is growing appropriately um, to screen and you know monitor for that IUGR and you know, the intrauterine growth restriction. Um, but really, it's just there's not a lot known. <laughs> and um, we could keep saying that. We could keep saying that. I mean, if anybody asks me a question, so I'm going to say, well, uh, it's, nobody knows. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody always has to kind of go back to where the guidance and the recommendations are coming from. And so if you look at ACOG, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, CDC, it's a lot of this exposure mitigation. So all inpatients in her facility, all inpatients are being swabbed upon admission, and they have a four-hour turnaround time, I think she mentioned. Um, If moms are positive, they do try to separate that mom and baby unit, whether they're in separate rooms after baby's born or at least six feet away um, with the physical barrier, while ventilated, again, breastfeeding, but mom's wearing N95s and, and protection during breastfeeding and trying to just eliminate that contact. Um, patients are all masked, um, and the healthcare... Well, they're, yeah, they're put in a negative room. Negative pressure room. And, <laughs> yeah, a negative <laughs> It's really room. negative. Everybody's like, Really no. negative. If you're a positive mom in UCLA and you're in labor, you don't even get one support person. So, you know, that is kind of negative, but... It's really just trying to prevent that spread and limiting the extra healthcare workers going in the room. Obviously, the nurse, doctor are going to need to be there, but they should have the appropriate protection on. You know, I think that uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. You know, we're quite rural where we are. And no. she can get a test in four hours. We can't even get it to the testing facility in four hours. We couldn't. Even if it literally left our door and drove there, it wouldn't be there in four hours. Anyway... Um, there are places in Minnesota, however, that are having same day testing. Um, we talked to one of the residents in Duluth, Hannah, who said that she had a lady that they were inducing and they were able to get same day testing. So she didn't have to wear her space suit for delivery like I did last week. Um, but really focusing on the swabs, screening for all other infections, monitoring mom and baby, just like you normally would in labor and really focusing on the mom and baby in labor unit, um, not just jumping to that C-section, but sometimes they do an earlier C-section. 
um, if fetal heart tones are not as reassuring or labor isn't doing what it normally does. So it's really kind of watching the whole picture. Um, as far as oxygen therapy, some facilities will do the nitrous oxide to help mom with pain um, in labor. We don't do that at our facility, but they've kind of gotten rid of that at all hospitals right now during this COVID thing because that might be an aerosolizing procedure. There's been some talk about limiting even oxygen on mom during second stage and pushing. Um, the benefit, of course, is if you can get point-of-care testing, you'll know whether it's high or low risk. Um, but again, you really got to look at every single case. And if a baby's not doing great, you might have to throw that oxygen on that mom and bring her to the OR. Just your staff better all be protected in the meantime. You've completely lost me. I don't even know where you are. <laughs> I and think we're at we, this management here. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> because we don't do anything as far as, uh, you know. Point of care testing? No, we don't, we don't fix this if we screw up. We're just going to let me keep going. Okay. okay. So anyway, so really the management, uh, our O2 therapy, our target is really around 94 for the pregnant patients. And I don't think you mentioned that yet. But um, again, that early transfer to a higher level of care, if these heart rates are above 120 or the respiratory rate's 30, and they're in their facility really considering mechanical ventilation very early if a person's starting to have problems. This is the mom, not the baby. Not the baby. Um, I did like how they mentioned um, like early epidurals as well for these moms because if if the babies and moms are not doing well and they do need a C-section, it's better to just be able to do that C-section with that epidural in place so they don't have to put mom under general anesthesia. Of course, we all know that moms and babies don't love general anesthesia, but it's that whole risk to your staff as well if you're having to put that mom under general and anesthesia is then getting exposed potentially. Yeah, and I think people would be surprised how in their facilities, much obviously bigger than ours, like probably 10 times, but they actually go through at the start of each shift if they have to transfer a patient who has COVID from their labor room to the operating room to make sure that they're not exposing other people. So they have a system as to how they do that. So I think that was really something that we all should be looking at if we're going to get a patient from the labor room to the operating room. How are we going to do that with bikes and and less people uh, to that possible infection. So then some final other points she made at the end as far as just different questions. Um, again, the monitoring of growth during early pregnancy of mom contracted, but that being pregnant and having to care for patients or being a healthcare worker who may be pregnant, um, there's really no special restrictions. Now, if it's possible to not do direct COVID patient care, if you are a pregnant healthcare worker, that is ideal. Um, and then you know, the proper PPE, N95s, cap, gloves, gowns, face shield for delivery. Um, and just if you are pregnant and you are doing, you are a healthcare provider, just avoiding the aerosolizing procedures. Um, if you're an anesthesiologist, um, maybe don't do the innovations yourself. Yeah, she talked for just a moment about some of the antivirals and how they were for pregnancy. And in fact, they're, they can only say that the antivirals are likely safe. And of course, remdesivir, which is probably the one that's being looked at most closely, uh, still does look like it's uh, probably safe. Ultimately, I think the whole bottom line of all of her medication thing was that if you're getting to the point that it's it's mom is doing that poorly, you're going to do what you need to do. Um, the the benefits are definitely going to outweigh the risk. I think the one point in here that I almost just missed is steroids. So if you have a you know a preterm uh, delivery, which these moms tend to have a little bit more earlier um, labors to not just jump to automatic steroids. You know, even even since I've been out of residency, we've now, we now give uh, betamethasone up to 36 weeks. 
they say in these moms, um, after 34 weeks, they don't get beta-methasone at all because, of course, COVID doesn't necessarily appreciate steroids on board. If it's a mom prior to 34 weeks and delivery is imminent, it's kind of, again, that case-by-case situation on whether you give the mom that beta-methasone or not. I don't know if you want to talk about some of the uh, anticoagulant. You know, as far as, you know, pregnancy itself is a hypercoagulable state. Just being pregnant, you do have an increased chance of clots. And so the question was raised, especially third trimester, do you prophylact moms who are pregnant third trimester um, with like a baby aspirin? Um, Do you prophylact the mom in labor? You know, I found it very interesting and a very good point that she made that, of course, if you're having a preterm labor mom, not a bad idea, especially if she's more immobile. But if she's not looking like she's doing well and is going to end up in a C-section, you probably don't want her anticoagulated. Coagulated. So nice. it's to really just uh, obviously monitor the situation and keep um, mobility uh, in the back of your mind. Did you want to say anticoagulated one more time? Anticoagulated. <laughs> so then came uh, Joe Helly, our VP at Centricare, our favorite VP. And I, I still haven't told the story of how he got the hook in his hand in the Boundary Waters. That's coming later in the season. Um, <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah, stay, stay tuned, and I'll tell that story. And it involves a veterinarian. But anyway, uh, so Joe talked a little bit about a universal testing today, uh, which obviously remains the priority, but we're still a little bit, uh, a little bit of time away from that, uh, hoping – he felt like potentially within the next week or two, we would be doing something like that. And that would just, he said the goal is to test all symptomatic patients in the next week and a half. Yeah, well, that would be universal getting all the symptomatic patients. Obviously, it'd be great to do lots of people so we could tell what the uh, real prevalence of it was. But um, And of course, Minnesota's still uh, doing well. We have a lot of ICU beds. We uh, are not overloaded, although in uh, just on the news, they talked about Bethesda, how they're now full of COVID patients. So and Bethesda, of course, is the hospital they like redid to just take COVID patients in the cities. Yeah. So uh, I think overall things are looking good. It's We've potentially flattened the curve a little so that we're not overwhelming our hospitals at this point. And so Joe continues to be very optimistic that testing over the next week or two is going to improve. Um, we then switched to our favorite ER doctor until Thursday when we have another ER doctor on. Um, but Dr. Hick talked about, again, as we're just seeing the tip of this iceberg. And I think he just mentioned as far as testing, you know, we have all these tests and we're saying we're doing this well. But again, we don't really have that many tests. Um, but really, if you can do one thing, even I think... I think he was kind of subtly mentioning even more important than checking somebody's temperature as a screening tool, be checking their pulse ox, so checking their oxygenation um, as an early indicator for a patient who might um, kind of go down the tubes uh, more quickly. Um, he told the story about the Ohio prison, which we're just kind of kind of skip over because that's not super Minnesota pertinent. But again, the whole focus, just like the prison, is on congregate living, prisons, jails, long-term care, Um and that the one new thing that they just launched is this call center. So if you are in a hospital and you are about to discharge a patient and needs to go back to a long-term care facility and you don't know whether they can go back, there actually is a new phone number, um, 1-833-454-0149. You can call to kind of get assistance on this uh, disposition and transition of care for especially these people who typically live in long-term care. Um, 
and actually he did mention that, that number could be used for other issues. If there was things that people needed to reach out to them about, they could also use that. So I think that was most of the questions that, uh, that everybody had. And, uh, it pretty much ended there. We should probably talk a little bit about what's going on on Thursday. On Thursday, we'll be having Dr. Cole, John Cole, I think. Is it John? John Cole. John mm-hmm. Cole. And he's actually a physician at uh, Hennepin Healthcare in the ER who has also recovered from COVID-19. So I think that uh, he's going to have a perspective from both uh, both sides of the bed, if you will. And uh, I think that's going to be pretty interesting that's nice. uh, to hear his story uh, of being a patient and being someone who takes care of patients. Uh, the following Tuesday, we will be having uh, our favorite infectious disease doctor from Essentia Duluth. Dr. Amanda Noska. Uh, who has relatives in our area, by the way. And, uh, and then she will be joined by Dr. Punjabi. Punjabi our favorite radiologist from Hennepin Healthcare. Yeah, and he'll be re- we'll be reviewing a, a case. Uh, Dr. Uh, Nask will give a little bit of an update on uh, some of the things that are coming out on, on the infectious disease side of, uh, of this whole issue. And then we will review a case of a uh, 16-year-old uh, with hypoxia, and they'll be looking at some CT scans. So I think that should be great. And I don't know if you mentioned it for Thursday, but we're having a medication update again. By our favorite PharmD. Our favorite farm D. Yes, and uh, we will be putting on Twitter some of the caricatures. I can't say that word. Caricatures of our or new favorite speakers soon. So please, please watch for that. We will catch you back on Thursday. And if you didn't check it out, um, part two of three on the Addiction Connection, also um, the heroin series by Dr. Charlie Reznikoff is up. But um, we are going to leave you today with a little bit of some music by Battle Legs. Um, this one is called Tecmo Super Bowl. I'm not sure I can that's get a it thing. Working? It's not going to work. I mean, we'd like to go out and make it real professional here, but it's uh, it's a little delayed. It's not going to happen. Oh, it's happening. Nope. It's, there's no music.